0: Today's guest is Alexander Bard. Talk about a polymath. Alexander is an author, lecturer, artist, songwriter, music producer, TV personality, religious and political activist, and one of the founders of the Syntheist Religious Movement. Quite a list of accomplishments there, and I'm sure he's not done. Hi, Alexander. (laughs) Welcome to the Jim Rudd Show. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Today we're going to talk mostly, but those who listen to the show know that we get off on this and that whenever either of us feel like it. We're going to talk mostly about Alexander's book Syntheism: Creating God in the Internet Age, which he co-wrote with Jan Söderquist. Very interesting, very deep, in some ways very strange book. So, Syntheism. It's a new religion where the internet is God. Is that sort of the 100,000-foot view?
1: Well it's really a new take on theology. I think theology is is really ignored at a very high cost in contemporary society and we need to return to theology to, to understand what theos or the belief in God actually is. I think God is basically the most misunderstood concept ever (laughs) and that's a good place to start for a philosopher. So we are obviously philosophers, but after having written three books originally, John and I together, uh, where we dealt with the relationship between human beings and technology, which is of course where your interests merge with mine, then we decided uh, a few years ago to write a trilogy. That we now call the exodology where we're actually dealing with uh, human beings in our relationship towards religion and history in the future and we we think that technology is essentially the new religion in the sense that we used to have a religion of magic and we replaced the religion of magic with a religion of technology or at least we should and um i think this is the key to get us out of the current predicaments we're we're stuck with
0: Mm, a bold statement let's see where we go with that First, let me push back a little bit. Why do we need God or religion at all? Didn't humankind wake up in the Enlightenment, and at least for you know, real thinkers, advance beyond the need for religion and God? Well, we
1: just invented new religions. We call them individualism and nationalism and, and other things. And all these isms we actually surround ourselves with are all religions. Uh, the first sentence in the book, Synthism, states that everything is religion and actually what's dangerous is whatever we human beings do that we claim is not religion, because it probably is, and then it's just bad religion. So I would say uh, religare, the, the old uh, French Latin word, uh, has Latin roots, religare, is that what connects people to one another and what connects people basically to the outside world. And the way we view it, Sertichrist and I, is that just like children have a relationship towards adults, that there's something they aspire to, then hopefully the adult population aspire to something than what they currently stuck with, and this this transcendence that they aspire to, which used to be called priesthood, and eventually the priests talked to the gods. That means that religion is is how we relate to the outside world, and the way the way it worked tribally originally was that you had a core a matriarchy dominated by women fantastic women especially the older women who controlled it at the center of the tribe you then had an outer circuit around that dominated by men which we then later called patriarchy historically in between them we had quite a few great androgynous people who who dare to walk in between men and women and sort things out in between them I always say that hairdressers are essentially a couple therapists and there you go you know, it, it's, I love androgynous people but I think their place on the tribal map that they should defend is actually as go-betweens between the matriarchy and the patriarchy in any society. And that's why they're needed. But we also need people on the border between the tribes. This is what historians have constantly missed, is that the shamans, of the community, there are about 4% of any given population, human population are called shamanoid personalities. And these are people who walk in and out between tribes if you study them in New Guinea or the jungles of Brazil, or if you study them in say New York or London today. The shamanoid people, personalities are androgynous, but they're not androgynous between men and women. They're androgynous between cultures. So they easily walk between cultures. And the shamanoids, were of course the people who handled outside relations. They were the diplomats of the tribe, so to speak. So they handled relations to other tribes, but they also handled the vertical external relations, which were the relations to the gods. And the gods in this sense were always the Ur-fathers or the Ur-mothers or possibly what was to come because religion is about history and religion is about the future. And when we talk about imminent reality, imminent reality is always the now. But you cannot have a history that is meaningful to you unless you have a religion that explains how how that works. And you cannot have a meaningful future unless you have a religion to do that. So what we claim in this book, Provocative, is Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age, is that maybe the internet now is a unique opportunity. We could actually just put the word God somewhere into the future and discuss God as something that we're going to create. Because I think... What we did wrongly in the last hundred years was that we, we took the word communism as an ideal and put it against God, at least we did here in Europe, to, to some really horrible effects. But the thing is that communism is where we come from. Communism was the original tribe, and we've ever since tried to organize our more and more complex society, which is a larger and larger population, to try to make that work. We try to create nations and empires and structures that are bigger than tribes to make sense of them and to make them work, right? So... What we come from is communism, and where we're going is God. God is the name of where we're heading. So, if, if if we say that we must disqualify the word God and never use it again, that's like saying we don't have a future. We don't have any goal to reach for.
0: you could say that, but that seems like kind of a stretch for the use of the word God. I mean, and that's just so we can clarify for our audience. When you know, a typical Western person hears the word religion or God, they think of one of the theistic religions. You know, they think about. Thor, or Zeus, or Yahweh, or Allah, Krishna, etc. And let's make clear, you're not talking about that.
1: No, I'm not. I'm not talking about the contemporary sense, because the contemporary sense of these characters is wrong. When people talked about Thor in the past, like 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, they just meant that there was a force that suddenly entered the reality that rained and stormed and thundered. And to see that force as a fertile force that could, you know, be fertile for the land through irrigation, other technologies and be useful rather than just a threat. You had to think of it as some kind of a personal force like a personality. And then you applied the personalities onto this. And people were aware of this 3000 years ago. It is contemporary society with too many Hollywood stories and too much individualism and too much of an obsession with our own selves that has made us rewrite history in this sort of dissonant caricature way. That is deeply unfair to what religion was, and it's also deeply unfair to us because we have needs to understand the world that surrounds us, and especially if you're going to move from the religion of magic onto religion of technology, which is what we really need today to understand the relationship between human beings in themselves and human beings and technology these are the things we need to understand and and time is running short because we're plundering and destroying the planet at the moment and and, and we're going to spread nuclear weapons across the planet and, and we're killing people who we should be friends with because we think they're strangers we have some desperate needs we need to address over the next 50 to 100 years or else we go to we're doomed and this urgency makes it in absolutely necessary for us to revisit history and to do so humbly and realized, for example, that if you immediately tie the word religion to the word God, you haven't even given the etymology of the word religion a fair chance. Religion is tied to something called theology. And you, for example, there are many religions that do not believe in God at all. And they're probably the best religions to research today to find a starting point for our work.
0: Hmm. Well, let me uh, take another view on that. Take Thor and Zeus, two examples I like to use. Isn't it another way to interpret how the world has unfolded is that particularly over the last 250 years, we have actually figured out some of these mysteries. We know that we don't need Thor to pound a metal sheet with his hammer to create thunder. We have a fairly good idea how thunder works and we have a fairly good idea how lightning works, not complete by any means, but we actually know some things finally, which we didn't know. And you know, if we think of the evolution of knowledge, or what we can loosely call knowledge, it has gradually squeezed out the need for this class of explanation called religion. But that was never the point with religion. Listen,
1: the point with religion was to tame these forces inside ourselves. And that is where people fail miserably. Now, If you believe the sort of Richard Dawkins caricature of religion, you haven't even studied what religion was. You're deeply unfair, you're unscientific in your own historical research. That's why Richard Dawkins fails so miserably in his project. You've got to understand that, for example, you love Thor and Zeus, Ther- so, you said these characters, right? But Zeus is matched by, you know, there's Jupiter, Mars, and Zeus, and, and these characters, we had Thor and Odin, for example, in, in paganism in, in northern Europe. But these characters essentially with something we call the two-headed phallus. And we're writing about it in our next book, which is the third, by the way, of this trilogy. Synthesim is the first book, Digital Libido is the second and the third book, Protestant Event is going to come out in about two years' time. But we're working with it as something called the two-headed phallus. And this is how men organize themselves in between each other in the outer circuit of the tribe. And it turns out that for men to successfully proceed, think of a nomadic tribe, right? It has to be on the move all the time. And the two main focuses of the patriarchy, and that is to win war against enemies. And that is to win during the hunt to deliver food and provision for the tribe. We call these two aspects uh, protection and provision. At least that's what women call them and they expect men to deliver on these two things. So this is the rain god and the sun god in all the polytheistic faiths. The sun god maintains the world. That means the sun god is the god of history. So that's religion, as history. We could call this, if, if we split Nietzsche's concept of the will to power into two, I say it's a two-headed phallus, it's not a single phallus, that was Nietzsche's mistake. But If you think of it as a two-headed phallus, then you got the sun god who maintains the world, maintains the sky, and the sun god is that aspect of us that researches history properly. This is what science is supposed to do today and then gets full knowledge, if possible, of the world as it works. And this is called will to intelligence. So the urge towards science started in religion. It came from religion. It started with the Zoroastrians in Persia 4,000 years ago. They call this principle Asha. It's called Tao if you come to China. Asha is the principle of how things work. That's what it means in ancient Persian. This was a religious innovation 4,000 years ago that to improve on the world as we know it, it's also better to have more knowledge about the world. So to know how nature actually operates is the calling of the priest, it's the calling of the sun god. And this is the will to intelligence in human beings. But there's also another force which science ignores completely and should have nothing to do with called will to transcendence. And the will to transcendence, according to the Zoroastrians in Persia 4,000 years ago, was that the sun can actually improve on the father's world. And the way the son can improve on the father's world is based on the fact that he has more knowledge than the father has. And why this idea was developed some 4,000 years ago in response to the old nomadic the eternal return of the same, you know, the religion that paganism preaches, the religion that still exists today called Hinduism. This is the religion of the eternal return of the same. That was the basic religion among nomads for hundreds of thousands of years. But some 4,000 years ago, this is very Marshall McLuhan, by the way, even if he didn't see it, but 4,000 years ago, people realized that through the accumulation of information, there was a direct result of written language. It was possible for the son to not only dream about creating a different world than his father, but to actually do so. And this is exactly what we started to settle permanently and create permanent settlements some four to 5,000 years ago and organize society accordingly a whole new way. And we left the concept of circular time and added the concept of linear time. And along linear time, society can progress and be improved on. This is science. But for science to be conducted, for somebody to want to become a scientist, there has to be a will to transcend us. There has to be a will to improve on the world. And that will is not in itself scientific. That is what we call a pathic will, a deep will within us. And this takes on the other role in polytheistic religion, which is the rain god. So the rain god is the god who storms in and fertilizes the world, and, you know, fertilizes the world so that things can grow on the plains, on the earth. And this, of course, the dream of farming, of agriculture, that if you can control the rain decently through irrigation, for example, so we can control, control the waterfalls, we can grow way more. This is why engineering, the history of engineering, starts with irrigation. It's the first fantastic thing. And after we built irrigation, we start building aqueducts. So this is what, of course, the empires did during, during in ancient times. They, they built aqueducts and things. And we had drawings and we started writing and and we used written language to enhance the world and also to be able to permanently settle. And thereby, the population of the planet exploded from 3 million, which was the maximum during the nomadic era, until 8 billion today. This is a fantastic religious achievement within which science has played a fantastic role. I don't see religion and science as opposites, and neither do the ancient Persians. I, I think the unfortunate thing in the West was that in the fifth century, we separated church and state and allowed church to be what we call the religious monopoly and allowed state to be some kind of a secular monopoly. But in the rest of the world, we talk to Easterners when you go to India, China, and, and discuss other cultures. They're like totally alien to this concept because all, everything should be within religion because religion is pro-science. It originally was pro-science. And this idea that religion and science should be totally opposed to one another is the big mistake of the West today. That has brought us all the way to the brink of disaster.
0: Let me push back on that one a little bit. At the Santa Fe Institute, we have lots of anthropologists and archaeologists who are either in residence, or part of our external faculty, or come through. Some people think of it as just a bunch of renegade physicists, but we also have people from lots of other disciplines. And I've pushed on exactly this question with probably 50 anthropologists and archaeologists who study pre-modern people. And I would suggest that the idea of science was quite anti-selected for, And the question I ask, it's always the same one, is in the group of people you study, has there ever been the equivalent of the smart-ass 17-year-old kid who says, instead of spending all this time on the rain dance and all the ceremonies and dress and costs, et cetera, with it, why don't we do an experiment? For the next five years, let's do the rain dance in one place and not do it in the other. Compare how much rain comes and see if it makes any difference. Now, that's a classic proto-scientific perspective. And 50 out of 50, and consider these are all hard-nosed scientists at, you know, associated in some way with the Santa Fe Institute, so quite quantitative, quite sharp thinkers, 50 out of 50 said it would be literally unthinkable in a pre-modern culture to even pose that question. And that kind of surprised me, having been a smart-ass 17-year-old myself who challenged every premise of every adult that I could find. But they seemed quite convinced that there was something about the deeply religious world that made a truly scientific perspective literally unthinkable.
1: Well, I, I, well, I, I, know, the, I know the story. This is the Marseille-Leod School of Anthropology that dominated the 20th century. But also, you have to remember this one thing. I, I I know Sanskrit, for example. I know Mandarin. I know Avesta. I don't think any of the 50 guys you talk about Sativistia have really bothered to go that deep that we do in our team. Because I'm a philosopher, I have to go deeper than they do. But all until now, we start history in Europe and North America with the Greeks. The Greeks would have been embarrassed with this assumption. The Greeks basically summarized thought that came from Babylon and Persia and, and India and Egypt and tried to make sense of it. And, and basically Greek philosophy is the division between the Egyptian and the Persian traditions. And this has not even been understood. I mean, it's only 20 years ago that we finally proved that Heraclitus, who was the precursor of Plato and Aristotle, wasn't even a Greek. The reason why we only found fragments of Heraclitus in ancient Greece was that he was a popular Kurdish-Iranian philosopher, was a court philosopher of the Median Empire. Now these are these are just brand new things we discovered in the last 20 years. And I, I'm sorry to say this, but I don't think the guys at the Santa Institute, I think the 20th century anthropology. We're doing 21st century anthropology, in my team, the people we work with now around the world, for example, in China and also in North America. And I'll give you another example of this. The entire history of Asia as we know it is a completely made up 19th century European fantasy. The the idea that Buddhism and Zoroastrianism and Taoism were separate religions and separate schools that would have had some kind of popes somewhere who dictated how you would believe things. Completely alien to Asian thought. Asian thought, thought is essentially trade routes, right? And along the trade routes, you have these oasis towns. And in the oasis towns, you you had the hospice, and you had the restaurants, and you had the whorehouses, you had the bathhouses, and you had what was called costogs in the ancient Persian. A costog was a precursor for thousands of years before we started building monasteries in Europe. And monasteries are the origins of our academic institutions and science. Well, you can't deny that. But the costogs of where you went for spiritual enlightenment along along the Silk Route, for example. And it wasn't opposed to that. this is where you got your act together, you got your facts together, you got your credits and your debits together, right before you left the Oasis Town for the next Oasis Town along the trade routes. And the Silk Route is undeniably by far the most impressive construction humanity ever made. It lasted for thousands of years, it was only killed by the plague, And by the fact that Europeans finally could put large ships on the oceans in the 14th century. Before then, the Silk Road dominated everything. And if you look at the Silk Road now and reread and re-understand Asia as a concept, and you discover these three huge cultural superpowers called China, India, and Persia, then we can't sit embarrassingly with our European-American fantasies starting with the Greeks who sort of brought civilization to us, and then the Enlightenment finally made us discover we didn't have to do rain dances 400 years ago. This is ridiculous. The Zoroastrians stopped doing rain dances 4,000 years ago. They were embarrassed by any belief in the supernatural. When Zoroaster wrote the Gothas, one of the most radical texts ever, And this is the origin before Heraclitus' fragments. Heraclitus' fragments is basically a rewriting of Zoroaster's Gathas a thousand years before Heraclitus wrote the fragments. And Heraclitus and the fragments invented dialectics. And without dialectics, reintroduced dialect, introduced dialectics to the West. And without the Heraclitan dialectics, there would never have been a Plato and Aristotle, there would never have been Islamic art and architecture, there would never have been the West to speak of. None of this would ever have happened. We haven't gone deep into our own history. And this is also why I'm frustrated that we still don't understand how damn fantastic Judaism is because Judaism is way more a grown-up religion than Christianity. And Judaism never needed to separate science or religion the way we did childishly in the Christian world. And... And this is where I base my work on. I I I worked in Asia in the 1980s. I've been working on this for the past 40 years. I've been publishing books for 20 years. Now I'm sort of getting famous. Finally, when people are realizing that to understand technology, you need to go to guys that are far more smart than Ray Kurzweil ever was. I mean, he's embarrassing. You got to go. You got to go much much deeper to understand things like religion and science. And hey, I'm totally pro science, but I'm I'm pro shifting science towards science 2.0 which I think starts with rewriting the entire history of science to fully understand what science is. And then we can't have Marcia Liad's sort of hocus-pocus 19th, 20th century anthropology any longer to understand how we stopped doing the rain dance because it's just banal racism to me. There were people who stopped doing rain dances in China and Persia thousands of years ago. And the question is, why did they do that? And oh my God, that's exactly how they achieved civilization.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I will say, being a, a Westerner, I'm not particularly knowledgeable of certainly the details of a lot of Asian history. Wish I wish I knew more about it. Probably should dig into it. But you say Zoroaster 4,000 years ago. Isn't he more of an axial age guy, about 700 BC, something like that?
1: No, no. This is interesting and a great question. No, I'm totally pro the Bronze Age. And I love kids these days who, who play computer games, because the Bronze Age is exciting when you play computer games, because people built stuff and they went to war and things happened. Because then came the Axial Age, and it was full of what I call the Boy of Pharaohs and the Pillar of Saints of History. I think it's precisely the overestimation of the Axial Age that has been problematic all along. Because you associate the Axial Age with the Buddha and Confucius and Plato and Aristotle, and eventually Christ and things like that too. But when you look at Zoroastrianism and Judaism, their origins are before the Axial Age, and that's why they're so damn interesting. And I think the West starts with Zoroastrianism and Judaism. It starts with the Persian-Jewish axis. The West, historically, is anything west of the Gobi Desert. That means both the Middle East and eventually Europe as part of that is the West. The East is China and India and Japan and whatever is east of the Gobi Desert. If you look at civilization last last 4,000 years, that's a map that makes a lot of sense, Right? So what is it that the Persians came up with? Well, prior to the Persian enlightenment, starting with Zoroaster, that was 1,700 before Christ. 700 before Christ, that's when Zoroaster occurred. Zoroaster realized that the phallus needed to be two-headed, but he also realized that the phallus, and and, and the collaboration between the Shah and the Mobit. the Shah is the the emperor, the Persian emperor eventually, and the Mobit is eventually the the supreme priest of of the Persian empire, right, of the Zoroaster religion. They should have separate courts, they should be separated, and only the Shah should claim heritage. So the first son of the Shah would be the next Shah, the second son of the Shah became the next moment. This is how the Persian Empire was run for 1,400 years. The most successful imperial order human history has ever known. Completely underrated by Western historians. But it was fantastic, right? So you have a model there. The Persians then, we know this story very well from the Jews, but the Persians then found a really funny and interesting Egyptian sect that ended up in Babylon. And this was essentially the people who tried to imitate the Persians later, about 300 years after Zoroaster. So this is Akhenaten. And Akhenaten tried to completely reform and obliterate polytheism and go for a completely monotheistic religion. And the way he did that 1300 before Christ in Egypt was that he made himself the first dictator in history. So he he refused to have a two-headed phallus. And it's interesting why. It actually has to do with the topology of the landscape itself. I always claim that the only place where you can have a democracy is where you have at least two rivers and a land in between. Because then you can create a religion of how the two rivers have a shared ancestry, and the shared ancestry is how you construct religions like Zoroastrianism and Judaism. You can't do that when you only have the Nile. It was like historically bound to happen in Egypt. that The first attempt at a really solid Stalinist dictatorship was a not in Egypt, 1300 before Christ. He only lasted for a few years. His son Tutankhamun took the throne after him, and the priest just decided we've had enough. We're going to murder the pharaoh, and they killed Tutankhamun. And according to Sigmund Freud, this is Freud's unique genius, this was the last project Freud worked on before he died. But Freud went all the way back in Jewish history, the way we should go back in our history of the West today. And he did a radical break with Jewish history and went all the way back to Egypt and said, well, if we came out of Egypt, we must have been Egyptians. But we were a religious minority in Egypt. So what happened was that after Tutankhamun fell, polytheism was reintroduced in Egypt. And Egypt never returned to its former glory after that. It became you know, a pale copy of itself because Egypt, of course, bloomed during the Bronze Age. So Egypt was not part of the Axial Age. That's exactly why we don't have any Egyptian philosophers or Egyptian artists or Egyptian drama writers when we talk about the Axial Age. But what happened was that to, after Tutankhamun, you had an Atonist cult. And of course, one of the names of God in Jewish religion is Adonai. And Adonai is originally, like Moses, Moshe is also an original Egyptian name. So there was a story about a Moses who led a cult out of Egypt, and they probably arrived in Babylon eventually, and this was called the first exodus in Jewish history. But it was later rewritten according to Persian standards, because according to Persian standards, a single man cannot lead a people anywhere. He cannot lead an exodus. You need at least two. So it was split into two brothers called Moses and Aaron. And also there was a sister added called Miriam. And any Jew knows that the proper way of telling the Exodus out of Egypt is actually told through the Exodus out of Babylon. So it's told as a story of the three siblings, Moses, Aaron, and eventually, Miriam. And this, of course, replicated today, for example, the U.S. Constitution. We know that any imperial order has to be a triad, it has to have an executive power, that is Aaron, it has to have a legislative power, that's Moses, he receives the law from God, and it has to have a bitch at the back who holds the two guys responsible for what they do, which is precisely what any matriarch does in any tribe I've ever studied. So... Because this got into Western history as one of, you know, canonical part, this is key to Jewish history, and of course we then inherited Jewish history through Christianity the West, this was the official version of the Exodus out of Jesus, told after the Exodus out of Babylon. So what was the Exodus out of Babylon? Well, it was the Zoroastrians who ruled the Persian Empire, they conquered Babylon, they introduced two different layers to religion. There was a mystical higher layer for the priests and for the military. So the rain god and the sun god were replaced by a military religion called Mithraism, which was also the military religion later of the Roman Empire. Bullfighting and lots of things we do in our culture are inherited from this chain. And the other chain was Zurvanism, which is the really, really strict love of brutal truth, brutal reality. This is the origin of science. Zurvanism was a closet sort of mystery religion within the Zoroastrians in the Persian Empire. And this was the religion of the priests themselves. And then you had a folk religion beneath that. You could believe anything you liked. So the origin of universal human rights is known. It started when the Persians conquered Babylon 600 before Christ, simply because they already implemented an imperial religious order we had to hire religions for the priests and for the military, but they were separated from the folk religion, which is basically today what we would call you know, the mother and the child and Christianity and the saints and any god that any decent person could pray to and, and ask for you know, you know, gifts or whatever. This sort of thing, what you, you called the rain dance earlier, that's folk religion. The Sourisists just left folk religion to itself. It had nothing to do with leadership and nothing to do with science. So they didn't care about it. They allowed it to exist. Because it wouldn't hurt that he was there. It helped regular human beings out there. This is the beginning of religious tolerance. But when they found the Hebrew sect that came out of Egypt, the Atonists in Babylon, they were thrilled. Because the Atonists had, by the time to come to Babylon, split their Adonai into Adonai and Jave. They picked up Javeh from Canaan. And they kept Ardenai from Egypt, and this was Freud's great insight. And by having a split, they again replicated the old rain god and the sun god, which is the will to intelligence and the will to transcendence. This is the enormity and the fantastic qualities of the Jewish religion. The Persians were thrilled, and we all know it's historical fact that the Persian Empire paid for the Hebrews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It was completely sponsored by Persian money. Because for the Persians, that allowed them to create a nation, the first nation in history within the empire. And this is the beginning of nationalism. And this is why Judaism is the first of the last nation. It's the ultimate form of nationalism because it's both nation and religion in one. Now, this is the Persian Jewish heritage on which we eventually built the West, but we've lost track of that historically because of the tragedy of separation of church and state that we did in the 5th century, and we need to go back to understanding, no, we need several religions that work in parallel if we're going to run a global order today.
0: Now, interestingly, about every 10 years, I go back and read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Jewish Bible, and Joshua. And people say, why do you add Joshua? I say, well, if I'm going to read a joke, I might as well get to the punchline, right?
1: <laughs> That's a good one, yes.
0: And interestingly, I just finished doing it about a month ago. Also, I, interesting that Freud discovered this, I didn't know it, but I raised my eyebrow and I saw, hmm, the Jews had actually been in Egypt for 400 years before the Exodus. It does make me believe, you know, 400 years is an awful long time in cultural time I had the same thought. Hmm, maybe the Israeli Israelites, as they actually call them in the book, were actually a renegade group of Egyptians. It could certainly be.
1: Jim, I think, I think there are hundreds of people, possibly thousands of people like who have thought this, but because Freud, right before he died, right when Hitler started killing you know, the Jews in Germany, and, and he was lost. He, didn't, he, he liked England, okay? He didn't like America very much, and he was sitting there in 1938, and he published this fantastic book called Moses and Monotheism. And that's what he focused on. The last thing this amazing guy Freud spent his last energy on was precisely going back to just looking at the obvious. If the West started with the Jews and the Greeks, why don't we go back and study the origin of the Jews and the Greeks to understand where we come from? And I think it's fantastic you... You just read these. You you read yeah. You read the Old Testament, and you, you you're asking the, exactly the pertinent question one should ask: If there's a story of these people walked to Egypt and came there for 400 years, they probably came from Egypt. I mean, the obvious question is: Where did Egyptian monotheism go after Knoton and were wiped away? Well, they probably were enslaved, but they were great workers, and I think we should even reread Karl Marx in this sense because Marx was a Jew. who talked about a proletariat that need to get, you know, out of where they're stuck and, and claim the power that they deserve. It's so damn mosaic. It's incredibly Jewish, actually, his idea. Even he, You know, he, he was a bit confused about it in 1960, but when it comes to the passion of Karl Marx, it's very Jewish. And I think today to to reread this for me is like, what is the real digital? We know that what we've done with the internet so far has been basically, if I may say so, a great fuck up, right? We didn't know what we were doing because we didn't understand the phenomenon. We didn't even understand ourselves. Even Facebook is dying now. Instagram is dying now. All these things were just fakes and, and you know, time pass stuff. And, and, and you know, if, if you employ thousands of psychologists to make people addicted to something, that's evil, Facebook has been evil all along. Now, this is not the real digital. There's something way more promising to digital. And I think that's precisely we need to go back to these stories of the promised land. What does it mean to leave the industrial age behind? And who's willing to commit themselves to be among the chosen ones when offered, to go into this new world, to go into the world of digital, and then come back and redefine what it means to live in a physical world when digital is around with us? This is exactly what my philosophy has been about for the past 20 years, and now people are finally getting it. This is what we call an exodology. So it starts with, precisely like you do, rereading the Bible and ask yourself the question, what is an exodus? Oh, there are many exoduses in history. We had one quite recently when guys like you and your ancestors got tired of my ancestors and left Europe and moved to America. That was a massive exodus and boy, it did succeed and it's impressive and even if we talk about Biden and Trump and all that shit today, I mean, it is impressive what America has achieved. It is an exodus and and these exodus is what we need to study because this time around we need to make an exodus from physical to digital and understand that fully what, what, what we're up to.
0: Yeah, I like that and you may or may not know this, but I was actually involved from the very beginning in what we now call the internet, I worked for a company called The Source starting in 1980, which was the first consumer online service. We had much of what's on the web today, email, chat, buying stuff, stock prices, news wires, bulletin boards. Even the first Catholic confession that was ever done online was done on The Source with the approval of the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. We were located right outside of Washington, D.C. And keep in mind, yes, we had all the functionality, not all, we had a fair amount of the functionality web today, but it was exceedingly expensive and very kind of low tech. It was text only, 30 characters a second, which is really slow, and $10 an hour, which is really expensive, especially in 1980 dollars, So call it $25 or 20 euros an hour. That's high, right? But quickly, we had tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of users because it was the only way you could do this on earth. If you wanted to do a chat confession with a Catholic priest... The only place to do it was The Source in 1980. Then we soon had a competitor called CompuServe. But one of the things you do talk about in the book is, yes, those of us who were there at the beginning were pretty damn naive in some ways, right?
1: Yeah. I I mean, you, you were the early sect or the cult of what eventually becomes religion. This is why I honor you, Jim. I love you. I went online in 1988 but that's about the time when it arrived in Scandinavia but I knew the day that I connected my computer to thousands of computers out there, they were all becoming one huge computer and for good or bad this needed to be understood this had to be understood quickly because this machine itself would become so powerful, the people who would control it become so powerful and that so, so we needed to understand that but of course I celebrate guys like you who are out there early on and in the some book, I actually sort of, I knew the question would rise that when could we then date the internet age? When would it start? When would the internet at least become so obvious to some people that they understood it as a new separate phenomenon or a new age? And all I could do then, with your help, I could have dated it earlier probably. All I could do with John when I wrote the book was that we decided to go back to the film premiere of the Koyaanisqatsi movie, you know, A Kind of Scottsy by Godfrey Reggio financed by Francis Ford Coppola because it was a fantastic Californian sort of project. It was a big film. It, it, used, it used music by Philip Glass and all that. And it, it debuted, it premiered in 1982. So we just said, okay, we, we can have the starting point could be the, the opening of the Kind of Scottsy movie and we can start from there. But, but you know, we, we could have picked any date there somewhere from the early 1970s to the late 1980s and say, here's somewhere where the complexity has arrived at such a point that there's a tipping point, that there's a certain awareness that something really radically new is going on. And this is, to me, what's so important here with with synthesis and with the title. This, to me, is the beginning of the Internet age. We're just at the beginning of it.
0: Indeed. You know, what we picked up on early by 1981, 80 and 81, and it started to accelerate in 82, was that the magic power of this pre-internet, and it was not the internet because each one of these services was a walled garden, where if you were on one service, you were not on the other. And that was the case until 1990 or so. You know, we went through a whole series of generations. We had The Source and CompuServe and AOL and Prodigy, and there were many other pre-internet online walled gardens.
1: Yeah, I know because I I know I was among the first million who were on what we probably call the internet today. There were only thousands, and and basically it was people at universities and and, and military people who were online in 1988 when I got online. That's that's how I remember it. And but it, it became a million only about a year later.
0: Yep. Anyway, let me get back to what I th- what I saw in 1981. In fact, it was the reason I left the source was the the idiots who bought our company, the Reader's Digest, this very stodgy big multi-billion dollar publishing company, did not understand or would not believe what I was communicating to them, because I was the head of product at The Source in 1982 when they brought down some new CEO who was some big wig from this multi-billion dollar publishing company. And I had written this paper, which turned out it was absolutely correct in retrospect, which was that the power of this new medium was self-assembly. It was not publishing. These people were publishers, and oh, young man, content is king, right? And I go, fuck you, asshole. Communication and self assembly into interest groups is king. And oh, by the way, it doesn't cost us anything. You know, your content plays, we were spending, you know, 80% of our costs and development time on this stuff, and they were. More than 100% of all of our profits, if we had any profits, if we didn't, would have been coming from our communication services, our chat services, our bulletin boards, our forums, and even a very early precursor to social media called Participate. And this is where people could use this substrate. We actually called it a substrate, at least I did in this paper, and that our products were catalysts that caused assembly of structure on a substrate. And I said, this is where we should be putting all of our investment. And this was in the late spring of 1982. And they considered it for a short period of time. Then they rejected it. And then I quit and went and started a whole bunch of companies and became an entrepreneur. But to my mind, it was the fact that self-assembly was the superpower of these new networks.
1: Yes. And this is what's so important here. When we talk about religion, you and I here. You always talk about it in this way that you're you take on a rain god mentality. And the rain god mentality is to take yesterday's magic and turn it into tomorrow's technology. So it was telepathy yesterday it becomes a smartphone today. And this is exactly how you should perceive new technologies when they start to develop. The problem is people take their old glasses with them, their old worldviews with them and try to understand the new through the old. Like if it's always more of the old. And this is exactly where the they're not imaginative enough to understand it. They, they should take on magic because magic is the way we look at something and say, "What? what is this? This is something that I've dreamed about, but suddenly it's here and it works. And because it's here and it works, it will change history forever. There's not even a word for this until we invented it. We call it paradigmatics. So you take, say, Thomas Kuhn's concept of the paradigm, right? And and you know that people are always chasing up to now. They're always chasing up to now to try to understand what technology does. Technology is like this new box that's open all the time on on Christmas Day and it's got new gifts in it. And you try to understand what you're going to do with these new gifts using your old glasses right and it's precisely when these old companies like readers digest i remember because my mom read it when i was a kid and they're probably gone by now finally you know it was old paradigm trying to understand the new stuff you were working with and it's precisely this experience you were working you saw that self-assembly was key here self-assembly had only existed as a magical concept before that in history that's why you could take it from out of nowhere and understand it but you took the magical concept of self-assembly looked at the technology you were using and realized self-assembly was happening right in front of your eyes. It was real now. This achievement is what I celebrate in all my work. I don't celebrate these sort of pillar saints of the axial age who have ideas. I celebrate the engineers and architects of the Bronze Age from then on and forward who build shit and who build it and hardly even understand it and then knock themselves into people all the time who understand even less of what's going on. And this is the kind of confusion we're living with the Internet today because it's not even only that we do not understand the technology enough today, we don't understand ourselves enough today. We understand ourselves through old glasses that are actually incorrect. We're not scientific enough about our own souls, about how we function to understand the interaction between us and between technology. And this is, this is what we need to rework completely to, to understand it fully and to really embrace these fantastic capacities of these technologies that we're surrounded with. And it's the guy who gets the paradigmatics, it's the guy who gets the new paradigm, who supplies the new paradigmatics, who takes the innovations to a far higher status. I mean speaking biblically here this is the moses this is the messiahs we're looking for today the messiahs are the people who who guide us to or actually innovate in at such a level that they understand fully what it means to be human embrace humanity in a whole new technological environment
0: yeah. though i would also add and this is the insight i had in 1994 at which point, ironically enough, I was a very senior executive at a multibillion-dollar publishing company. <laughs> Talk about irony. <laughs> yes. I was the CTO of Thomson Reuters, right? And it was, you know, by mid-90s, I guess late 90s, I was actually one of five people considering on the list to potentially be the next CEO. Fortunately, I left before that could have happened.
1: Well, you, you saw the two you saw the two paradigms very directly, didn't you? Because I, I work I work with television until last year, but finally I'm out. <laughs>
0: yeah, I saw that you were in like some kind of American Idol type thing. God damn, talk about the apiosis of game A. Jesus Christ, but hey, what the hell? It pays the bills, right? Yeah, so here's the key. This in 1994, I had the epiphany. Here I am in the belly of the beast, you know, a C-level executive at a multi-billion dollar multinational publishing company. And then the light came on that, Jesus, all of our behaviors are driven by the institutional structure of our financial and monetary systems in a loop I call money-on-money return. And I have been obsessed with this ever since. And that led to the so-called Game B movement with a bunch of my friends, including Jordan Hall and Brett Weinstein and Bruce Kunkel and another dozen or so.
1: Yeah, these are friends we share. These are my best friends in California. There you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Daniel Schmachtenberger is now joined later. So anyways, it's a very cool crew. But the inter- original concept from my original paper in 2012 started with my work in 1994, which is institutional structures are really important. And then when you look at the evolution of Facebook, and this is the perfect proof of my theory, which is... It's not just that we don't understand our humanity. In fact, in some ways, we understand the cognitive bugs, that was psychological bugs and cognitive hacks too well. And when you combine psychological bugs with machine learning driven to optimize money on money return, and you get the hell broth, which is Facebook. Yes, exactly. The important point here is that institutionalism least to my mind maybe I'm missing something I'd love you to educate me on what I'm missing here is not the same as religion right if we had a different monetary and financial structure Facebook could not work Facebook gets its power its energy from driving and being driven by the inner loop of short-term money on money return short term I mean about three years
1: yes exactly my point it's an institution without a religion There's no religion there except possibly Mark
0: Zuckerberg's young, big ego and nothing else. I mean, what what else
1: was there? What was the point?
0: The scary thing about Zuckerberg is we had a guy on who wrote a very good book about Facebook, and he got to know Zuckerberg over five years. Here's something I don't know if you know, but Zuckerberg's hero is Augustus Caesar. Of course, oh,
1: he's such a boy. These, these are the characters I call the boy pharaohs. And my critique of Silicon Valley for all the oppressive stuff that has happened there is that Silicon Valley was taken over by what we historically called the boy pharaohs. The boy pharaohs are related to the pillar saints. These are the boys who aspire to be sun gods and rain gods, but they're not even grown-up men yet. You cannot become a god unless you're a grown up man yet. You better be a grown up man for at least some 50 or 100 years before you can qualify for a small, small god. Right? So, so this, this is what gods mean actually. So these guys what they discovered something with their 25 got a couple of friends out of the way and came declared these geniuses who were sitting in silicon valley to to make these technologies and then some guys came through the door with some money and threw money at them and then wanted to own them but of course this was institutionalized from day one this is precisely what is the tragedy of the separation of church and state there was never any church inside google and when they said, don't be evil, we knew they meant to be evil because they had no resistance against evil. That's exactly why woke has taken over completely Google. There was no immunity to these idiocies that we're seeing today. And that's exactly why Google will also fall. All these sort of institutions are very quickly built empires on no ground at all, no basement, no understanding of history, no understanding of how humanity works. This is why Douglas Rushkov and I become such great friends because we're in the same battle here. It was idiotic from day one. Why would anybody assume that a 24-year-old boy would build what humanity would need for the future? He was bound to only build something that the old establishment would try to then colonize and control through the old ways and that's why they call Facebook now a media company tries to behave like a media company and my god it's the worst damn media company you've ever seen it bans people bangs them in the head throws them out for 48 hours and expects them to come back and be grateful no you don't torture your clients Mark Zuckerberg (laughs) this is what Facebook does today and they totally lost it and, and they'll be over in no time at all because we need new better technologies that are deeply ingrained in how we can serve humanity because we're not gonna buy into anything else. When the kids asked me today if they should keep their Facebook accounts at all, cause they're all on Signal and Telegram now, which are not Silicon Valley companies, by the way.
0: Yeah, Signal's great, I, I use Signal for a lot of money.
1: Signal's great, they're all built on encryption and respect of users, and they're also built to be in opposition to all institutions, which is the best way to build a new religion. The best way to build new religion is to declare the old religion old and redundant and then oppose it like the Hebrews did in Egypt and then conduct an exodus and say, listen, we're not going to be here. So in, in a way, ironically, what I'm talking about here is an exodus out of Silicon Valley as the kindergarten of the internet age that we now have to leave behind quickly because it's become the old Egypt to us. And we have to enter some kind of new promised land. Well, you know, Wikipedia is a communist product, but at least it works. So there are things out there that can inspire. But I would say this. When the kids ask me if they should even keep their Facebook accounts, all I tell them is that whoever stays at Facebook now is bound to become the new digital underclass. Because digital is nothing but echo chambers and addiction. If you're going to be the upper class, you better be much smarter than that. And the word for being smart is an old Greek word, a beautiful word, antagonia antagony that is you look for somebody who will challenge you always look for somebody who will challenge you because that's how you become smarter that's how you become that's how you extend your will to intelligence that's how you extend intelligence itself that you become smarter science was always looking for new challenges new problems to solve Right, So the way to do that in your own life is to look for people who challenge you, have a different opinion than you do, have a different background than you do, come from a different culture than you do, because that's how you expand your own world and also help them expand theirs. And that's exactly why staying within an echo chamber, everybody just agrees with everybody. Facebook just designed pagan lynch mobs. It's nothing. That's what Me Too and this stuff came out of Facebook too. I knew right away that this would be really damaging to people and not at all what young women deserve. They, they didn't know any better. So the female equivalent of Mark Zuckerberg running Facebook into the wall was essentially the young girls thought that Me Too was a good idea. They didn't even, even ask their grandmothers first. Because the grandmothers told them, if a guy makes a sexual pass on you, smack him in the face and scream. <laughs> That's what we did. when We were young. No, don't, don't go to a Facebook forum and sit and bitch and complain about it and, where you cannot even tell the difference between the truth and a lie any longer. That was always the problem with Me Too. Me Too was young women trained to join a pagan lynch mob. And at the end of the day, it all miserably failed and it's more or less over by now. And it, it damaged, especially relations, But in young women in tech today who want to make a career, there's no way for them to get a mentorship if the mentor is an older man. Because a man over 50 years old will not walk into an office with a 25-year-old girl any longer because he'll be terrified of the fact that she might go out and start a closed forum somewhere and then send a lynch mob after him, no matter what he does.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. I was able successfully to mentor several women who worked for me, who went on to have great careers, and that's a good point. That would I be able or willing to do that in the current Me Too slash Woke age? Perhaps not. Let me jump back to something. Maybe this maybe this is where we'll find our touch point between our stories. Again, one of the stories of the origins of Game B was I would say it's probably the origin event that actually led to Game B was a meeting that Jordan Hall and I had at the Santa Fe Institute in about 2008. He was a brand new trustee, young, 34 years old. I think he'd been kicked out of his company after it went public. And he made a shitload of money. And one of the things he did was became a trustee at the Santa Fe Institute and hang out there. I was like vice chairman or something at the time. And
1: Oh, I, lo- I love Jordan. I love Vanessa's wife. I think they're fantastic people. And, and I, we should recommend it listen, to the, the Google Jordan Hall, check out the stuff he does. He's always an interesting character.
0: Yeah, by the way, he and Vanessa are showing up at my farm this afternoon in their RV. So that's going to be fun. Oh,
1: give them my greetings. I love them to bits. They're wonderful.
0: They're wonderful. Yes. So anyway, back to the story, which is critical. And it may be where we can finally touch and agree, or we'll find that we're going to see things just slightly differently. And we were just talking about our, our life's experiences, and we ended up talking for about four hours after the board meeting. And I still recall the main through line of the conversation, which was when I entered the business world in 1975, maybe I was lucky, the first two companies I worked for actually had virtue. There were things that were profitable and legal that they would not do because they were wrong, right? Quite explicitly. The companies had moral codes or virtue ethics, if you want to get fancy and philosophical about it.
1: I call it the long-term view. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. And then Jordan popped in and said when he joined the business world in 1994, all he saw was if it was profitable and at least arguably legal, then you must do it. And we both agreed, yep, that's what the world kind of looked like by 1994, and then we said by 2008, in this four hour conversation, we eventually got to the point that the ethos of the business world in 2008 was the cost, if you got caught, if it were smaller than the benefit of doing it and it were profitable, then you must do it. And so I wouldn't call it religion, but maybe you would, or maybe this is a place where we can touch common ground. It strikes me that one of There's a number of failure modes that lead us to something like Facebook, but one of them is the abandonment of virtue ethics as just a built-in part of our social operating system, which probably started sometime after World War II and reached a critical tipping point sometime between 1975 and 1994. If one had virtue ethics, one would not build Facebook, right? Yes. Or
1: one would build it very differently. It wouldn't be nicer. It's very important here. I think one of the mistakes Facebook made was that they were supposed to build a sociogram, which was a huge map of who knew whom on the planet. But because Facebook didn't offer us the function to remove friends who we no longer knew or never had known in the first place, it became a terrible sociogram. It's actually actually useless. Nobody can use Facebook sociogram. So, so it's, it's it's really about it's really about flattering the customer while being evil at the same time. But it's not about having a straightforward, honest conversation. And having a straightforward, honest conversation, what I call phallic, to be phallic. I mean, it is, it is the phallic gaze, as opposed to the matrical gaze of unconditional love. The phallic gaze looks at reality first historically and then looks at us. So it's the phallic gaze we're looking for to find orientation. This is science, right? To find orientation in a proper reality. So Facebook never even gave us that. It wasn't like Facebook gave us the hard, brutal truth anywhere either. It just flattered us like advertising people do. They flatter us all the time. And then we know they're really dirty and they want to sell us something that we really don't need and don't want. And that's why we hate them. We hate advertising. And Facebook came exactly like that. So I think this to me is like, it sounds a bit like Russia under, under Deltz in the 1990s, even more so under Putin today, but it's game theory in, in a sense that sort of ate itself into at least American capitalism in this way. And the problem was because virtue ethics disappeared, it stayed in places like Germany and Japan. I worked there a lot. So I tell you, the, the technology companies coming out of Germany and Japan, you cannot run them the way you do in America or in Russia. But what ate itself into the American psyche was this idea that if you could get away with it, you would do it. And it, it, I think it's an inheritance of game theory. and That wasn't the point with game theory. You can't, you can't use game theory on yourself for your own honor, for your own self-integrity. You can't do that. But what then happened was that over the last 10 years, this whole woke thing happened instead. So corporate social responsibility came through the door. But that's even more deranged. It, it's a response to the fact that virtue ethics disappeared. So it seemed we had a Wild West again. But in this Wild West, again, with game theory taking its place, instead we brought in woke. But woke is just another way of being insincere. It's just virtue signaling. It's just just the old sort of petit bourgeois way of doing virtue signaling all the time, which means you have a charity event for the poor, but you don't invite the poor to the event. Obviously, you're a hypocrite. So the charity event is all about having a charity event to look great, to have another charity event the next year. And to have another charity event the next year, you need more poor people out there. So you're actually at the end of the day going to embrace poor people by giving them handouts so they go home and foster their kids to be poor again. This is why I love Candace Owens and I love the black Republicans right now in America because they know that Lyndon B. Johnson's welfare program, no matter how well intended in 1964, was poisoned to the black American community. And that's exactly the problem here that what woke does today within corporate culture is that it instills this idea that there's a cheap route to looking great by posing with something that has nothing to do with what the company does. I, I would recommend anybody today to actually go back and read Milton Friedman again and understand what the corporation is all about. And then get that evil idea out of the head because it's not that you're supposed to be good rather than evil. It's all about being long-term. And to be long-term means having a sincere, honest relationship to your clients and your customers. And that's how you build companies that last for hundreds of years. And if you go to a Japanese inn, that has been around for 1400 years, you learn how to run the company. Now that's the way to do it. There are no cheap routes. There are no quick fixes, shortcuts, or anything to run a good corporation. If you want to run a good corporation that your children will want they inherit and be proud of and can take to the next level, you better go to places like Persia and Japan and learn from these ancient cultures what they actually teach you about having a relationship to truth that is long-term. And it's not about good and evil. It's just about being cool about what you do and stay in the long run of what you do.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, but from a basis of virtue, I would argue.
1: Yes, that, that is what virtue is. Exactly what virtue is. It is, it is dying an honorable death. It's called hörvatat in Zoroastrianism. So it's, it's like hörvatat means having lived a full, complete life with a smile on your face when you die. So you have an Ameritat, which is what the next generation will inherit from you that they can build on. This is what religion is about, and this is what a corporation should be about if a corporation has a religion,
0: yeah, let's talk a little bit about woke, and then we'll move back to the subject, which is I think actually you underestimate the badness of woke. You know, superficially, it is indeed virtue signaling and you know the insincerity of the actions that actually will do harm to the groups they're trying to help. That's bad enough. But I believe behind this, call this the flattened version. you're familiar with the work of, Hansi Freyneck.
1: Yeah, they're They're my students, more or less, to be honest about it. They're called Daniel and Emil. They're from Sweden. Yes, I am. Yes, very much so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had Daniel on under the name of Hansi three times, actually. I've read both of his books very carefully, annotated them, and he and I continue to collaborate on various things. So anyway, he always talks about the flattened versions of ideologies. And so the wokes in corporate America and the HR department are the ones out on the street are what I call flattened versions of postmodernism, essentially, particularly critical race theory and colonial theory, whatever fuck they call it. But the bigger danger are the people behind them. A very interesting book by James Lindsay called Cynical Theories.
1: Yes, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's a really great book.
0: I had James on the show not too long ago, so people are interested in hearing James in his own words talk about these cynical theories. He points out that in addition to these virtue signaling people out front, there are people behind, essentially, who are consciously plotting how to build power through the manipulation of these flattened, woke people in front of them. And some people call them cultural Marxists. I don't know if I would call them that or not.
1: No, I, I, think, I think Marx deserves way better than that. They're not Marxists at all. They're Rousseauans. That's, they, that's where these ideas come from.
0: Ah, Rousseau. It's funny you mentioned that. I hate Rousseau.
1: A little parenthesis. If you read Digital Libido, the follow up to the synthesis book, this is where we discuss the Ro- Rousseau and Lynch mob as the horrors of our time today. The Jacobins are back again. This is what woke people are. The Jacobins are back
0: again. Yeah. I should read that book.
1: It's the follow up to the synthesis. Then that leads into pros and events. So the whole trilogy, when you look at it, that, that's exactly why you and I agree so completely on this one, because it is the follow up to synthesis. Yeah. Please continue.
0: I, I, just as an aside, I often say that the Enlightenment has two branches, two main branches, the Diderot-Voltaire branch and the Rousseau branch. And the Rousseau branch led us to Nazism and communism, thank you very much.
1: Yes, exactly. Hitler and Stalin were Rousseauans. And you know what? Pol Pot took his PhD on Rousseau, not Marx, in 1967 at the Sorbonne University in France, and then went home to Cambodia and killed two million of his own countrymen.
0: I did not know that. I'm going to add that to my rhetoric.
1: I love this. We hate Rousseau together. We have an abject. We have something to hate together, you and I. Rousseau,
0: yes. And yet, you know, I'm still, I don't know if you know about these spiral dynamics and color codes and all this horse shit. I proudly say, I am an orange man, goddammit. Modern to the bone and a fan of the Enlightenment, and i.e. the Diderot Voltaire branch of the Enlightenment is what I mean when I say that. And I think our job... I wouldn't call it religion. You still haven't convinced me we should call it religion. We should, let's have that discussion next, why we should call this religion. It strikes me, what we have to do is take the Enlightenment on the Diderot-Voltaire branch, which then led to the Scottish Enlightenment.
1: Yeah, and it, re- it led on to my favorites, like Hegel and Nietzsche in Germany in the 19th century. This is where I base my philosophy. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree completely. And I always tell my students, I will always disapprove Plato and disapprove Descartes, and I will certainly disapprove Rousseau. But they all wrote fantastically. They're great enemies to read. And I, I, my students are not getting away from them. They have to understand them fully to deal with them.
0: Yes. It is one of the tragedies of history that Plato was such a better writer than Aristotle.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and Rousseau was a damn good writer. And Voltaire got away with too much. And I always say that I wish Nietzsche had lived in parallel with Rousseau, because Nietzsche wouldn't have allowed Rousseau to shine the way he did. That's That's for sure.
0: Very, very interesting. So, anyway, what does this have to do with calling a system, creating a culture? And, you know, in the game B world, we call it deep code or we call it a social operating system that incorporates virtue ethics from the very, very beginning and is a way of living and includes institutions like a better monetary system, includes what is status. You know, for instance, we talk about status being through experience, not stacking up possessions, etc., raising your children in a righteous fashion. That's going to be status in the Game B world. Is that the same or different than your view of religion? And if so, why would you call it religion?
1: That is what religion is. I'm a Zoroastrian, remember? They don't believe in anything supernatural. So the Zoroastrian perspective on this is that this is precisely what religion is and this is the origin of the word religare in latin and french that's what it meant what connects people and lasts what has lasting qualities over time to connect people so how do we domesticate ourselves and the forces within ourselves so that it pays off long term and that's why we train our children. That's why we send our children to school. I know you had Lynn Anderson on the other day. I think what Lynn and Zachary Stein are doing right now is fantastic work because we need to also redefine what building is or, or enculturement is or being cultured. And, and that's why we train our kids, you know, to, to, to be grown ups one day. And we domesticate ourselves in that way too, actually to make it pay off in the long run. And it's when you take the long-term perspective, you start to see what virtue really is. And I want to I want stress this, precisely where religion is lacking, that's when it gets dangerous. This first sentence from the Synthes book. It is precisely when academia lost its virtue that it opened itself up to woke culture. It was precisely when academia started falling apart and would not embrace the internet. It would not embrace the new challenges that came from the internet and try to more or less kill the internet, which academia has tried to do for the last 40 years. By problematizing it and deconstructing it. All of these movements from academia have been about destroying the enemy that is coming, that is coming along. Because academia is dying, you know, it's, it's dying. And that's of course when the mediocre talents run into academia. And what do they do in academia? They declare that we're gonna save academia, they were gonna be the heroes of academia. And what do they do? They invented woke. There's no deeper reason. That's exactly what Daniel's right to call it flattened. There is no deep reason. There's no deep, sincere passion behind this at all, except ego. This is just completely ego-driven. It's incredibly narcissistic. And you... It's not even about getting the resource. At least the Marxists were fighting about resources in the past, and and they were saying we should tax the rich and give money to the poor so the poor can one day become rich. Okay, one way or the other, that's what social democracy tried to do. But these guys are only fighting for this one thing called attention. And they must have attention. You know this when you walk into an academic room, and the academic room is no longer obsessed with who has the best truth to tell? It's no longer obsessed with producing the truth together in the room. It's obsessed with who's talking. Like if who is talking is more important than what is being said. But at the end of the day, it's like a reverse. It's like Versailles is back again. It's not the streets of Paris. It's not the new forces out there trying to tame the new forces and the, the fantastic potential of the new. This is like Versailles. Woke culture does never discuss substance or essence. It's obsessed with tonality and etiquette. And the way it's obsessed with tonality and etiquette is that it confirms and keeps the categories we try to get rid of like race. That is how distorted this is.
0: Exactly. And further, this is, again, being a nice orange enlightenment man, my other big objection to it, and I get into this with people regularly, and I beat them every time, is that the variety of postmodernism that turned into woke, is specifically designed to reject empiricism. You can bring evidence to refute claims of the woke, and they'd say, well, the evidence is irrelevant. Or they'll first say the evidence is wrong, then you demonstrate that it's not, or you show how to make the evidence better. They'll then tell you it's irrelevant. I would call woke a religion.
1: I would add that Michel Foucault would have hated what Woke became. It's not Foucaultism at all. It's not understanding Foucault. Foucault is like a reversed Nietzsche. He was a fantastic thinker. And he thought about madness properly, but he's constantly misunderstood because people think that he put reason and madness opposed to each other. He did not. He put understanding and madness opposed to each other so it could lead dialectically into reason. He was to enhance reason. That was Foucault's project. He would have hated this because he hated Rousseau and he loved Nietzsche. There's no way, this is why Jordan Peterson, Camille Paglia, and love those guys, but they're wrong on their history of the 20th century. They're dead wrong on criticizing Marx and Foucault, when actually Marx and Foucault is what they should use against woke today to hold them responsible for claiming that they have anything to do with those guys. The problem here was rather a book wrote that came out in 1985, interesting enough, when you and I realized that the internet was going to be this huge new thing, one of the biggest revolutions of history. Chantal Mouffe, a very clever Belgian professor, a woman, a of course, and Ernesto Laclau, an Argentinian philosopher, another Rousseauian, wrote a book called Hedge Money, where they cynically gave up on Marx, because they basically hated the workers because the workers wouldn't do the revolution they were looking for. And instead, they were looking for some kind of permanent revolution, which would put them at the center of things. And this is called intersectionality. The the term intersectionality used only a few years later. It was probably in the US early 1990s. But they essentially wrote a manifesto for intersectionality. And it's the hedge money book from 1985. Judith Butler and a few other guys in America followed up on it. And basically what they said was that, oh, it's okay to have a pagan lynch mob, but we need an object that we can all hate, that can then unify all this fantastic multitude of different cultures so they have a common shared goal. It wasn't about creating virtue or creating value. It was all about finding a common enemy. And the common enemy they decided to go for was the white heterosexual man, essentially the worker. So the very guy that Marx and Foucault had celebrated was now turned into a Jew for the Nazis to chase. That's exactly what they designed. And this is where we ended up with woke culture today, being these constant pagan lynch mobs being run from the online world being infused by academics from an academic world that has lost touch with religion, lost touch with virtue, lost touch with all meaning, and become nothing but careering for people who have no soul. And this is, of course, why they go after anybody they can find. And and they basically now literally remove anything that looks like a white heterosexual man, or for that matter, a Jewish heterosexual man they going after the juice next, right? So this is, of course, just the history of the lynchmouth being repeated. And I'm warning people that it probably will get a lot worse before it gets better. Because we haven't reread our history. We don't understand what's going on. We lost our sense of spirituality. We lost our sense of soul. And instead, we have nothing but a struggle between different narcissists who are all fighting for attention. And that's what woke is.
0: Yeah, it's one of the factions fighting for power, essentially.
1: Yeah, but it's an empty power. It's only I'm going to kill you so I get the limelight. That's how basic it is. It's not not the power that Foucault talks about that wants to establish itself and then create a better world because I I want the power because I've got a better idea that's better for all and I want to be given a chance to implement it. So vote for me or support me because I want to do it. That's not the power we're looking at here. This is an empty power devoid of soul and devoid of religion.
0: Indeed. Well, let's steer back a little bit to the ideas of cynicism and how the internet can be used as a substrate to bring into being a better way of living. I'm going to reserve the right uh, question later whether that should be called religion, but let's ignore my prejudice against that word and talk more about what you actually have in mind that what this thing should be.
1: Okay, uh, my work as a philosopher is not to be the artist or, or or the architect at the end of the day. It's basically to lay the framework. So, by putting communism at the beginning of human history... It was the original nomadic tribe. For good or bad, it was hard life. It wasn't nice at all, anything like that. Let's not romanticize about it like Rousseau did, for example. It was hard life, but it was something we lived for hundreds of thousands of years, right? So we call this now the Solseont these days. The Solseont is the original nomadic tribe that shaped our genetic makeup and shaped the different archetypes and personality types that we find among human beings. Okay, so we're all included in that model. We're all winners in the sense evolutionarily that we're still around. So we can we can work positively from that, but that's where he came from. So a great community online today, for example, replicates that. God is then not a creator; the universe recreates itself. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Big Bang theory, and I'm glad Roger Penrose and other guys are finally arriving with what was my conviction all along that before we even discuss physics, we have to discuss subphysics. Why Ted worked a lot with us, and many philosophers discussed in the past, but okay, so. The universe sort of replicates itself over enormous eons of time. So it is nomadic in a sense. It is the eternal return of the same. But it is the same that returns and stays for hundreds of millions of years. So a lot of shit can be done within the universe. So let's be a little more human here in perspective and just realize that for the next few thousand years, we can probably make this planet work. We need to save it. That's called ecotopianism these days if you need technological solutions rather than just dystopias to save the planet. There's cosmopolitanism involved in this. Philosophers work with the idea that, okay, can we create crypt- encryption, for example, crypto, to make strangers actually deal with each other so they could even like each other and enjoy each other rather than kill each other. These are old questions we need to solve now urgently because they become urgent because we live in a globalized, digitalized world. But there are minor issues here. The question is, where is technology really heading? Because if you look at the development of technology over the past 10,000 years, it increasingly looks like human beings have become smaller in the process. We use our brains less than we used to because we've learned to accumulate and process information outside of our own brains. And this is obvious now we look at information technology. So we then have paradigms. This is very Marshall McLuhan, but... We obviously have written language, we then have printed language, we now have interactive language. And before written language and spoken language made us distinctly different from animals. So we have four major paradigms of information technology. And with each one, the amount of information we accumulate and process has exploded. That is why the internet society, the network society is so radically different from the previous industrial age. There's so much more data around to be processed. Now the question is, Where is this revolution heading? Well, we certainly can't go and ask anybody in Silicon Valley because they have no idea what they're doing outside of their big young egos. So we need to construct a philosophy that gives us a phallic direction. This is like saying we need to leave Egypt and we have a dream about the promised land and philosophers like Gilles Deleuze have talked about virtual spaces and things in the past, but we need to actually start defining what kind of dream are we actually talking about. This is where Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberg, these guys, come into the picture. That's where they're friends of mine because we love to discuss and see if we can sort of start mirroring where we're going and where we need to go because I think we're going to create God one day I think the only name we have for the next possible paradigm shift in our history or the next emergence vector in in natural history, say beyond mind, if there's anything beyond mind, what would that be? The only name we have for that is God. We don't have a better name for that. But it can be a really terrible God or it can be a great God. It is the very design of this God that we can discuss and work with now before God exists because once God is here, we're probably out of the picture, at least when it comes to the design. This cannot be viewed in any other way than theology. You see why philosophy is sort of limiting because philosophy can deal with history and the now, but it can't really deal with these questions. So, what kind of architecture are we going to build to make this work in a way that is both humane, that fits human beings, but also is you know is is just artistically fantastic in many ways? I mean, what what would it be like to create? Uh, the planet that is like a collective work of art what would that be like
0: that would be quite interesting and that's certainly a trajectory for humanity that's within our grasp if we don't fuck things up yes and i think that is what's driving many of us who are you know i'm i could easily be retired in my affluent old age and just be enjoying life but i feel the moral duty to help in my own little way to bring into being this good trajectory for humanity, which I can smell, I can sort of see, I can't quite draw it yet. But we also have these horrible bad attractors like, you know, imagine Zuckerberg literally as Augustus Caesar, holy shit, right? Or the Chinese taking over the world or the wokes overthrowing the West. These are all nightmarish scenarios.
1: Oh yeah, and th- th- this is why I work from India rather than from China in my work because I work on a theme called sensocracy. And I think sensocracy is an un- unavoidable. We'll have sensors everywhere to our senses. And people say they go offline and walk out through the door. I just tell them, well, the satellites are watching you wherever you go. So it's not like you can walk off- offline anywhere any longer. But we need to respond to the Chinese because this is why I to Eastern philosophy. The Chinese have a lack here. And it's a lack in Taoism, interestingly enough, because Taoism starts with the yin and the yang. But I firmly believe the yin and the yang is secondary. I the primary when it comes to looking into the future is the two-headed fellows. So the separation of priest and chieftain or priest and king is Primordial, that's first, because we need to walk first. We need to conduct the violence first. We need to win the war. We need to gain from the hunt before we go into sexuality. And in sexuality, we then go into the yin and the yang. So I think this is the shift between the Persians and the Chinese 4,000 years ago. We are the children of the Persians, because our religions, that later came Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and, and the Enlightenment, are all children of the Persian Revolution, where Persia separated from the Chinese. And the fact that the Taoists never dealt with the fellows meant that it was left completely to outside the church, which in the Chinese case is Confucianism. And Confucianism has only one idea, put an emperor at the top and then create the best damn bureaucracy you could ever have, which means it's supposed to be incredibly efficient. But we know today that bureaucracies have communications in both directions, And it's not so much a moral issue of avoiding dictatorship and avoiding the Chinese model here. It's more that the Chinese model will ultimately fail because the emperor will not hear the bad news. We saw it in Wuhan, China. And the reason why we have this curse called COVID-19 around the world today is to be blamed on the fact that China is a dictatorship because the news wasn't reported to Xi Jinping quickly enough and he only acted six months later after the outbreak because everybody tried to cover their own asses in case the dictator is going to be mad at you, right? And this is the problem with dictatorship. It was a problem the Egyptians had. It was a problem Stalin had. It was a problem Hitler had. And it's the very same problem Xi Jinping has today when he runs this sort of mimicking copy of North Korea today called Communist China. That's essentially what it is. When he took dictatorial power in 2014, I think it was one of the most tragical moves in history because China then turned away from a path where he could have entered a free and open world and collaborated massively to that. Whereas Taiwan did that, Communist China refused to, and Xi Jinping went for the dictatorship model, which is the old Egyptian model of of Akhenaten again. And the reason why that will fail is that nobody's reporting up to the emperor, so there's actually no creativity within the system anywhere. China, as it is today, can only mimic the rest of the world and plunder it. It cannot create genuine new value for humanity. But a free and open system can. And that's why I think the U.S. Constitution, again, is so absolutely fundamental and so important. It must be protected because if the U.S. Constitution can be used as a filter for the next wave of technology coming out of North America, then the United States could play a really important role in the exodus that I'm talking about.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's take your analogy and let's bring it down to the actual case of this emergent internet world where... Despite the badness, fundamental rottenness of Facebook, particularly the open Facebook, there are groups on Facebook where people are forming up. You know, we have our Game B group, several thousand people. Those who are interested, search Game B, all one word, on Facebook. And it's happening everywhere. Of course, now we're probably soon going to do an exodus from Facebook and from Twitter because of the fact that they are censoring our own people. Both Jordan Hall and Brett Weinstein have both been censored by Facebook in the last 10 days.
1: Yes, get out. I I completely agree with you. Get out of Facebook and Twitter. Yes, they're ruining themselves. Yes,
0: they're just evil. So anyway, let's assume that we do an exodus, and the beauty of the internet protocol. So there are some choke points. I mean, I was an internet infrastructure guy late in my career. I basically ran the domain name system for the world. My company did when I worked for. I'm CEO of. So there are some choke points we have to watch out for that the powers that be can grab. But if we do an exodus, I love that term, exodus, how do we replicate in a good fashion the idea of the priest and the king? Now because we know that both priests and kings often lead to bad ends, right? We can we know the horrors of bad monarchs. We know the horrors of bad priests. My favorite example are the Aztecs that kind of merge the two into a special kind of shit show, almost unequaled in known history. So what is your thought on the internet exodus of the good people who want to bring on what comes next that could lead us to this glorious future and not one of these bad attractors that's out there? What is the role that's the equivalent of the priest and the king?
1: I think what they represent and what they're supposed to do is what's important here. And then if you c- construct something better than an individual priest, individual king, that' would be much better. So the priest represents will to intelligence. So this is half of the will to power in Nietzsche. The will to intelligence is that I want to know my own history. I want to know everything that ever happened up until now. And all these kids right now who talk about the big bounce rather than the big bang, and they study physics and maybe even subphysics soon, and chemistry and biology, and want to understand what it means to be human in biological sense compared to other animals. All of this is history. All of this, science deals with history all the time. So this is the love of science. This is the love of knowledge. This is the love of knowing everything that ever happened factually. So this in our philosophy is called truth as a fact. But there's also the will to transcendence. And the will to transcendence is to be courageous, take risks, create environments where you can take risks and take them again and again. And if you fail, you can stand up and try again. And use the knowledge you have, but also the guess into the future from the knowledge you have about the past, the guess into the future, and make concerted attempts constantly to invent and reinvent. Now, this urge to invent, is not in itself scientific. It's it's the world to transcend us. This is what the king or the chieftain or the rain god, if you like, historically represents in mythology. So this is the other aspect. A good thing is to keep them separate. (laughs) And I don't mean that the, the, the guy who innovates shouldn't be knowledgeable. Certainly he should. But the guy who's the expert or in charge of getting the knowledge in there is the priest then. And the other guy is the guy who executes. And the way we did it successfully during the last paradigm was that we separated academics from capitalists. So he basically said the capitalists are out there. They're supposed to be entrepreneurs. They start companies. They read a fucking Milton Friedman <laughs> book and they get it right. And they run a great company and they hopefully innovate rather than just mimic and therefore they create enormous value to the company and to humanity. And... Opposed to that, you have academics, and academics, you, you gather all of history, and you also eventually try to gather information. Like basic research, the way you talk about it, you talk about research and development. Research is the priestly part. Development is the, is the royal part. And this is the split we constantly need to work with. And, and why this fails in China is because they don't understand That research is a research about human beings more than anything and how they're going to interact with anything you then later develop. No, the Chinese think research is just find something out there in the world and, and take it down to smallest components and try to copy it. Communist China has never reached beyond that point. They haven't fully understood what research and development is. I work with European companies, I work with American companies, and yes, they manufacture in China, but they're frustrated with the Chinese. The Chinese cannot understand what research really is because research starts as a priestly discipline. It starts with basic research. Go back to the basics. Don't take anything for granted. Starts with the zeros and the ones out, and what is mass and what isn't mass, or whatever. Starts with the very basics of things, and then build all the way up to get the proper building, the proper understanding, the proper knowledge to then be able to make the big jump. This is what phallus is, phallus is the division, this is the 2 headed phallus, it it is research and development essentially.
0: Interesting, now there's a third level and this comes from our work in deep code, the work of Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberger to a lesser degree myself which we alluded to earlier, which is, okay, you have those two, but they are incomplete without the institutional structures that produce the signaling within the society, which rewards virtuous behavior and punishes unvirtuous behavior, and essentially is the orchestration level of both research and development. I know,
1: but I this, this is probably where I disagree with you because you're too close to the Chinese. I think the urge to reward and punish is in itself boy far-o-ish. I would even say that it is. And I, I, I would say that this is Axial heritage. It, it's this eagerness. Wouldn't it be fun to create a better world by constantly rewarding and then punishing? And I've seen it in the environmentalist movement, and that's why I'm an ecotopia, I'm not an environmentalist, because I'm actually very critical of, the, for example, the concept of nudging. I think it's dishonest. I think, it, it, I think it's too much of Pavlov's dog in it. And I think human beings are actually will be very, very upset when when they discover that's what you try to do with them. I think there's a deep human instinct, human instinct that opposes these ideas. But they are heritage, the Greeks love these ideas, they do, This is very Platonist. Even Aristotle, I would say, why I side with Heraclitus against Aristotle, but likes that Aristotle critiques Plato, is that Plato's the real bad guy to me, Aristotle is at least decent, but Heraclitus is a genius, but he wasn't even Greek. But I think even with the Greeks there was this urge, this, this is always the urge that if, if somebody's told you're talented, and you've been really successful, and you're a man, it's probably very easy to urge yourself towards the boy pharaoh or, or the well, the pillar saint categories, and the, I, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to them because I think deeper down, if I'm honest about it, there's a gnostic thing here. There's gnosticism at play here, and it's the gnostic who thinks the mind is better than the body. It's the non embodied mind that comes up with the idea that the world will be better if I, me would be the guy who would then reward and punish people for good or bad behavior. Because you can't tell what is good or bad behavior from your horizon. You can't tell that. That is a preposterous idea. It's very tempting, but if you think it through thoroughly, like all the other Platonist ideas, perfection, immortality, infinity, they're all ridiculous ideas. Nobody's ever thought through perfection, infinity or immortality, and it's the same thing. The idea that I could be crowned to be the little boy king who then decides who gets rewarded and punished for behavior that I approve of because I know better than they do, I think that is preposterous.
0: I would agree with you that any one boy king, because another one of my historical philosophical political heroes is James Madison, the guy who actually wrote the U.S. Constitution. And he was very aware that any individual or small group is inevitably going to be corrupted sooner or later. But as a systems thinker, It strikes me that a society isn't going to work very well if it doesn't have an architecture of signals that show a gradient of socially constructed good behavior and bad behavior. And it does not have to be from an individual. It could be democratic and transparent and emergent. And I do believe that's what we're thinking about in the Game B world.
1: I'm already responding to that because I know, Jordan, Daniel, I know your work too, Jim. And my, my proposal, and I'm working on the new book, is something that I call membranics. What is interesting here is when crime, for example, occurs and somebody breaks the rules and actually hurts society as a whole in the process, is if you think of any life form or any town or any nation or any entity we human beings think of, like ourselves, our own bodies, for example, or or your family, like uh, we think of it as there's a membrane around it, right? And within the membrane, we're actually very comfortable because within the membrane, we do love each other. We, we have close connections. Uh, you don't need rules, actually, how we are supposed to be. You don't punish your kids, for example. You don't punish your kids. You seduce your kids into behaviors that you think are good for them, but you also tell your kids that it's your opinion that this is good behavior, and they're, when they, as they get older, allowed to have their own opinion about it. You don't punish your kids. So why would you punish and reward people in society if you don't do within the family? Where, suddenly, does it become a nice thing to reward and punish people in society when you don't even do to the people you love within your own family? So if you scale membranes and start thinking, it's called membranics. It's like you think of membranes like you almost mechanically run them. How do you run a membrane successfully? But what is important for a life form is what comes in, which is hopefully nutrition, and what goes out, which is probably shit. (laughs) So if you construct a membranics, and if you say certain things are allowed inside this membrane, and the, the people who live within this membrane have decided that they have a certain set of rules within here, that you have to accept if you're going to go inside the membrane. Now, you can then apply to be a member of this, and you got to go to the portal of the membrane and apply to be allowed in. This is how you run any medieval town. I saw it when I studied these trade routes, because along the trade routes, this is what you did. You, 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 you know, to keep the Mongols out for as long as possible, and to keep the plague out for as long as possible, you had walls, and these are, of course, membranes. And then you got the cleverest guy, the best guy you could possibly find was the guy you put at the port of the membrane. And he would then know that out of the benefit of the membrane, he would allow certain people in, with certain risks, yes, but he would allow certain people inside the membrane because according to his experience, according to history, according to the will to intelligence within the membrane, because the first thing a life form does, as soon as it has a lipset and external and an eternal world, it creates a subjectivity and it's tied to a memory. That's why you have a library close to the port of a membrane. So you can check in with people, have you been there before? Uh, have you paid your credit or do you have a debit, you've overrun or whatever. But m- m- always when we allow somebody inside the membrane, that's what you do it. That is where law should exist. Law should really exist at the inside and the outside. So the reward and the punishment is whether you're being allowed in and for how long or not. I'm fine with, I think anybody's fine with the fact you get borders that work around a system. But it's inside the system, you cannot, in every miniature detail, microscopically within a system, install the reward and punishment systems because you create terror if you do that. And this is where I disagree.
0: I like this, this is good.
1: Yeah. Let them work on it. And by the way, I invite you and everybody else who enjoys our conversation to take part in this because I think the term membranics is out there and membranics is a great hashtag these days. And I need, I want to collaborate not only with my co-writer, John and our team, but I'd love to collaborate with you and Jordan and Daniel, on these ideas, because I think we start going down the, 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 the sort of route of, of thinking that reward and punishments in, in, in microscopically within a society. That is what social credit does in China right now. And it's creating terror within people it's a psychological horror to live within a social credit system and i think it should be avoided because it ruins the capacity for love inside the membrane
0: very good i would definitely like to talk to you more about it i'm going to call out a book if you haven't read it you probably haven't because it's very obscure it was the last book by john holland one of the great thinkers about evolutionary computation and complex adaptive systems who died a few years ago and the book is incomplete, but it was published anyway. It's called Signals and Boundaries.
1: Oh, I love it already. That's exactly what I work with. <laughs> Top my reading list. Thank you. Yes.
0: And again, I think you go one step further than we do in Game B, which in Game B we do envision what comes next as a society of membranes that are contained within each others and have signaling modalities and different nexuses, et cetera. Though I have never gone as radically as you have. I want to think about this. What happens if you had no rules inside the membrane, but only at the membrane itself? That's an interesting and radical concept, and it might be right.
1: Okay, so when a membrane gets so large that it starts to fall apart and it becomes criminal or whatever, then it's just gone too large. Shrink it. That's why I I discuss here in Europe, I discuss a lot with guys that are sort of judged being alt-right and nationalists and all that, because I think they got a point that's very important to stress. And this is why I say I think nations should be run well within empires, because if we have different scales and different membranes, then as long as you can behave in a certain way within a membrane, you don't need law and order within a membrane. It automatically follows that within the membrane you operate properly. And this was the tragedy of Marx and the idea of communism it was that he didn't understand scale he didn't understand that world communism was impossible and would be horrible and we saw it with stalinist russia and maoist china because it was a scale problem he had communism worked it works in any family it works in a small community it even works at wikipedia god save the nerds on wikipedia at least at last worked until now right so Maybe it's falling apart due to woke or whatever because, again, he was too naive and not immune enough to the outside forces. But a membrane will fall apart when it's naively operating and gets too big too quickly. So then we can talk about scalability. And then, of course, when the membrane, as the membrane gets bigger, then we need law and order within the membrane and court systems and prisons and things like that because if the membrane is that large for it to survive and to thrive, we need law and order.
0: Unfortunately, some of our world problems are of global scale. And so, and this is a Daniel phrase, I believe, Daniel Schmachtenberger, that is, that what we need is global governance, but not global government.
1: Yes, so we need a, we need somehow to make sure, again, we need to construct the proper God in advance. That's why I talk about the architecture of God. So we need to construct a system that then only deals with the issues that are really global issues, because the problem is... That as soon as you build a large system, large institutions, people make careers within those institutions, lots of boy come into the system. They think the system was built for them to run things as they wish. And, and then you get all, all kinds of problems, you know, with political corruption and things like that. And I think it has to be very clearly stated, if there is global governance that's part of the mix, then make it as minimal as possible and, and make sure it can only deal with the problems that are being addressed. So, for example, if that is global warming, it should only be allowed
0: to deal with global warming and nothing else. Yep, James Madison would have agreed. I think on that note, we're going to wrap it up. This has been a wonderful conversation. I think we discovered that we share a tremendous amount of perspective with each other, and I look forward to engaging in further conversations.
1: I do too, and so do we with all the listeners we have today. So, So, yeah, I love being on the show, Jim, and thank you for having me from the
0: bottom of my heart. It's been wonderful. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.